What is up, Ewu crew? The story we have for you today is one to surely give you nightmares and even have you rethinking the people with whom you spend your time, especially those who you think you can trust. We are going to look into the horrific realities of the infamous story of Charles Manson and some of the lesser-known conspiracies surrounding this case. If you enjoy true crime, mysteries, and true stories, be sure to hit the like button and subscribe. Now, let's get into it. In early 1934, 16-year-old Kathleen Maddox hit a crossroads in her life when she realized that she was pregnant with a child from a man by the name of Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Sr., who she had been seeing for only a short amount of time. Despite the sound of his name, Colonel had no affiliation with the military, though he did have Kathleen convinced that he had been called away on army business as soon as he found out that he was going to be a father. Following Colonel's inevitable abandonment, Kathleen found herself in a new relationship with a man named William Eugene Manson. Despite sticking around for her pregnancy, he still wasn't an appropriate partner, as he was often prone to alcoholism. They were married in August 1934. Three months later, on November 12, 1934, in Cincinnati, Ohio, Kathleen gave birth to a baby boy who she named No Name Maddox, before eventually calling him Charles Mills Maddox within a few weeks of his birth. By April of 1937, William divorced Kathleen after an alleged gross neglect of duty when taking care of Charles. Upon their divorce, Charles took William's last name, Manson. Thus, the infamous Charles Manson received the name that would end up going down in history. But for all the wrong reasons. Charles' childhood was tumultuous, to say the least. A few years after his parents' divorce, Charles's mother was arrested for both assault and robbery and ended up in prison for five years. Charles did not cope well with his mother's imprisonment. When Kathleen was finally released on parole in 1942, Charles was a visibly different child. It appeared to his aunt and uncle, whom he lived with during his mother's sentence, that Charles was the happiest he had ever been when he was finally reunited with his mother. Unfortunately for Charles, she was incapable of keeping herself out of trouble for very long and had an insatiable desire to commit crime. Just months after having moved herself and Charles to Charleston, West Virginia, Kathleen was inevitably arrested for grand larceny. Though she was never convicted for the crime, Kathleen nonetheless found herself in a bad place once more. She had continually allowed for Charles to skip school and maintained her old drinking habits nearly every evening without fail. Eventually, Charles and his mother ended up moving again, this time to Indianapolis where his mother remarried and Charles ended up committing his first series of crimes. The thing about Charles Manson, even as a boy, was that once he started something, he could never, ever stop. When Charles was only nine years old, he committed his first act of arson by literally single-handedly burning down his elementary school. You see, Charles was a troubled kid 
who desperately wanted to be loved and accepted by his mother. Unfortunately for Charles, Kathleen's mind was almost always somewhere else, as she seemed to focus on drinking, men, and survival. By the age of 13, Charles was forced to attend the Jabot School for Boys in Terre Haute, Indiana. As was evident to anyone who had known Charles at the time, the last thing he wanted was to be away from his mother. As such, he frequently ran away from the Jabot School for Boys and often wound up on the streets in his trek to reach his mother's home by foot. However, every time he managed to reunite with his mother, she would send him straight back to the school for male delinquents. With each escape from the school grounds, Charles's antics became more and more risky. He slowly began robbing stores and even committing petty theft while working for Western Union to make a little extra cash. After months of getting away with these smaller robberies, Charles was eventually caught for the first time in 1949. Instead of a proper sentence, a judge took sympathy on young Charles and sent him to a juvenile facility in Omaha, Nebraska, called Boys Town, instead. After all, it did not look like Charles was a bad kid, necessarily. Just a boy who saw himself as an outcast against the rest of the world, including his own mother. Of course, Charles could not seem to control himself when it came to committing crime, and instead of becoming reformed, he made friends who had the same values as his own and continued to steal what he could in hopes of getting away with it. Each time Charles was caught and arrested, he was sent to some new establishment for delinquent boys in hopes that the rules and regulations there could help turn him into a better man. Ultimately, Charles's time spent at the Indiana Boys School proved to be the worst situation he had experienced yet. At the school, other students would allegedly abuse Charles, forcing him to come up with a special form of self-defense he dubbed the insane game. When an attack seemed imminent, he would flail his arms about and scream incoherent phrases and sounds, trying to scare his attackers away by making them think that he was not of sound mind and perhaps even dangerous. For the most part, this method worked for Charles to protect himself, However, he was still completely miserable while locked within the walls of the Indiana Boys' School. While there, Charles managed to escape on 18 different occasions. On his final escape attempt, Charles was arrested, having stolen a vehicle on his way across state lines. As this was a federal crime, he was sent to Washington, D.C.'s National Training School for Boys. The caseworker aiding Charles' transfer had hoped that this transition would be enough for Charles to properly shape up before he became an adult. As part of his entry to the facility, officials noted that Charles was almost entirely illiterate, though his IQ was 109, making him undoubtedly smart, yet very reckless, an often dangerous combination. Manson was in and out of prison from October 1951 to 1967 for various crimes such as more stolen cars, abuse, and even pimping out underage girls for extra cash. Nearly every time he was close to parole, something inside of Charles seemed to snap, making him lash out in ways that ended up negatively affecting his predetermined release dates. As a result, 
The then 32-year-old Charles Manson had spent more than half of his life in correctional facilities. In fact, on his final release from prison, on March 21, 1967, Charles claimed that prison had essentially become his home. He even asked for permission to remain behind bars. He was denied. Perhaps if the authorities had known the monster he would inevitably become, they would have begged for him to stay in prison. Once Charles was officially a free man, something rather peculiar occurred. You see, Charles Manson had something captivating about him that intrigued people, something that made people stop, stare, and listen. When he was released from prison, Charles lived mostly by begging for survival until he met Mary Brunner, a library assistant at Berkeley, and he moved in with her. Eventually, they shared the residence with 18 other women, and Charles soon found himself developing a small following of misfits, all from the state of California. He dubbed himself as a guru, with most of his followers being women, though a few men also found themselves incessantly interested in the life that Charles had started to lead after years of imprisonment and abandonment. At the heart of Charles's cult-like group, were individuals by the names of Charles Tex Watson, Robert Beausoleil, Mary Brunner, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten. Each of Charles' followers was lured in seamlessly by Charles as his personality led people to trust him, and the lifestyle he offered fit perfectly into the 1967's Summer of Love. Charles offered a place of belonging for many, where they practiced free love and indulged in consuming newly accessible drugs. The group, under Charles's leadership, referred to themselves as the Manson Family, a title that would end up plastered on newspapers for years to come. Despite the popular assumption that Charles was a hippie and that he had created a hippie cult, he actually saw himself as distinct from the phenomenon of hippies. Despite the men's long hair and women's flowing dresses, Charles believed that hippies were weak and refused to call his group hippies, instead using the name Slippies. He chose the name to refer to how the Manson family would often slip into the homes of the rich and steal from them. Before the inevitable infamy that would come as a result of the Manson family's formation, Charles had wished for another kind of fame. He was a musician at heart, and in prison he had learned to play the steel guitar from a bank robber named Alvin Carpus. Charles had even met with Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys on multiple occasions to discuss music and the potential release of new songs. Unfortunately for Charles, he often found himself, and his musical talents specifically, being taken advantage of by those around him. In fact, the Beach Boys even ended up stealing an original song written by Charles himself, and both recorded and released it, without giving any credit to him. Putting his music woes behind him, Charles focused on his newfound role as a leader of his group of malleable minds. Something deep within him had been rather disturbed for years, but he never truly had a means of expressing it properly. That is, until he had a following. 
Charles took his time, ensuring that the members of the Manson family were loyal, trustworthy, and believed the notion that he would always be there for them, even when the rest of the world wasn't. Charles had successfully gained the trust of each member individually and would further solidify their respective relationships with him by providing them with drugs, emotional support, and constant reassurance that they needed each other. Charles's constant display of manipulation in the form of affection was integral to the tight-knit status of the Manson family as a whole. More so than that, it was the key reason why the members of the Manson family were willing to do anything for Charles and obey his every wish. They truly believed he would do anything for them, and they should do the same. Throughout the year of 1968, Charles convinced the Manson family that they were the reincarnations of the original Christians. With this understanding, he also told them that the establishment was a representation of the Romans who had martyred many of the first Christians. This type of anti-establishment thinking was a prominent counterculture in the 1960s. He also became fixated with the, quote, idea of an imminent apocalyptic race war between America's black population and the larger white population. In fact, Charles thoroughly believed that during the inevitable race war, the black population would spare the lives of only the Manson family and kill all other white people across the country. The Manson family believed that they were an elect group and would be spared because they would preserve the worthy during the upcoming apocalypse. Charles himself reportedly believed that he would be the leader of the people who remained after the race war, as they needed, quote, a white man to lead them. He would then become the master. During this same time, Charles became fascinated with the Beatles' song, Helter Skelter. According to former Manson follower Catherine Scher, he believed that, quote, the Beatles had tapped into his spirit, the truth that everything was going to come down and the black man was going to rise. It wasn't that Charlie listened to the White Album and started following what he thought the Beatles were saying. It was the other way around. He thought that the Beatles were talking about what he had been expounding for years. Every single song on the White Album, he felt that they were singing about us. The song Helter Skelter, he was interpreting that to mean the blacks were going to go up and the whites were going to go down. In the months after the song's initial release, Charles and the rest of the Manson family transformed into a kind of doomsday cult and spent a significant amount of time preparing for an attack of their own, one that would alter the course of Charles' criminal history for the worse. After the Manson family's constant movement from place to place, they decided to record their own album, like the Beatles, which would serve as the catalyst to begin Helter Skelter, the name Charles gave to the race war. They believed that their album would change the world. Simultaneously, the Manson family prepared their escape from the race war, where they would wait out the violence, including vehicles, maps, and a canary yellow home in the Canoga Park, known as the Spawn Ranch, but nicknamed the Yellow Submarine. The Manson family had prepared their race war inciting album, and they planned to play it for the famous record producer, Terry Melcher. It seemed that Charles still hadn't given up his desperate dream to be recognized in the music industry. Yet Melcher never showed up, 
and rudely snubbed them. Many people believe that Charles must have been a terrible musician, but in fact, Neil Young actually compared his music as, quote, quite good. Then in May 1969, Melcher showed up to Spahn Ranch, where the Manson family was living to hear their music. Charles expected Melcher to record them, and he even had a friend accompany him with a recording unit, but he did not make their desired record. Charles vowed never to forget this experience with Melcher. It was March 23, 1969, when Charles alone went to Terry Melcher's old residence at 10050 Cielo Drive, where movie actress Sharon Tate and her husband Roman Polanski were living. Tate was eight and a half months pregnant and was missing her husband, who was filming in Europe. Charles was seen by Shiro Katami, a photographer who was at the house to take pictures of Tate, before she was due to leave for Rome. Hatami watched as Charles entered the premise and headed towards the main house. And when Hatami asked what he wanted, Charles reportedly asked for someone whose name he didn't recognize. Hatami apparently told Charles that the house belonged to the Polanskis, and Tate herself came to see who was there. Together they watched as Charles went to the guest house and then left without a word to them. He returned again that evening and asked for Rudolf Altabelli, the property owner who had rented to Melcher and then the Polanskis, and was living in the guest house where Melcher was. Altabelli asked Charles not to disturb anyone at the house, and so he left. But the next day, when Altabelli and Tate left for Rome, she reportedly asked him if that creepy-looking guy had returned. By June of 1969, Charles decided it was officially time for Helter Skelter to begin. His plan was to have his followers commit a series of murders and stage them to appear racially motivated so as to initiate the race war that Charles had assumed to be inevitable. As their first act, he instructed Tex Watson to defraud a black drug dealer whose name was Bernard Lotsapapa Crow. The plan went haywire immediately when Crow threatened to kill everyone at the Spawn Ranch. The Manson family took the threat seriously and shot Crow in Manson's apartment in Hollywood. He expected there to be retaliation from the Black Panthers, though Crow wasn't a member. To prepare, the Manson family began patrolling the Spawn Ranch with armed guards. When no race war began, Charles then set his sights on Gary Allen Hinman, a music teacher and Ph.D. student at UCLA who had become an acquaintance to the Manson family. On July 25, 1969, some of the members were sent by Charles to see Hinman and convince him to join them and sell his stocks and bonds to give money to Charles. Hinman refused and was held hostage for two days. To try to force him to cooperate, Charles himself brought a sword and cut Hinman's ear with it. Bobby Beausoleil ended up stabbing Hinman to death, and one of the other members used his blood to write on the wall, Political Piggy, with a Black Panther paw, hoping to stage his death as a racially motivated attack. Beausoleil was arrested on August 6th when he was seen driving around in Hinman's car and on searching the police discovered the murder weapon hidden in the tire well. Two days later, 
Charles told the Manson family that, quote, now is the time for Helter Skelter. Many people now believe that it was Beausoleil's arrest that sparked the horror that would follow. On August 8th, Charles accompanied four other members of the Manson family, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krinwinkle, to come with him back to 10050 Cielo Drive. There, Sharon Tate was visiting with her friends Jay Sebring, Wojciech Frykowski, and Abigail Folger. At the time, Charles had no particular interest in Sharon Tate and her company. Rather, he had picked the Cielo Drive residence as his intended location to hit because he and Watson had both been there together once before and were both familiar with the layout of the home. Just past midnight on that fateful evening, Charles and the members of the Manson family parked just out in front of the residence and made their way to the home, making sure to clip the phone line to the house as they did. As the group approached the entrances to the home, they noticed a car slowly approaching their location. So Tex Watson went over to the vehicle by himself and leveled a 22 caliber revolver at a man named Stephen Parent, who had been visiting the property's caretaker in the guest house that evening. Stephen Parent begged for mercy and to be left alone, promising Tex Watson that he would not tell a soul about what he had seen. Despite the young man's efforts, Tex ended up slashing the palm of Stephen's hands with a knife and ultimately shot him a total of four times in the chest and abdomen. With the only potential witness done away with, the rest of the Manson family helped to push the young man's car out of sight. The group proceeded to cut the screen off one of the house windows. Watson let himself in first, before unlocking and opening the front door of the home for the rest of the group to enter. Once inside, a barely audible whisper from Watson managed to wake Frykowski, who had been fast asleep on the couch just moments before. Watson managed to detain Frykowski, who was then forced to show the Manson family where each of the other inhabitants were in the home. One by one, the Manson family took each of the innocent individuals captive in the home, and one by one, they were all killed, despite their desperate efforts to escape. Sebring was shot seven times. Frykowski was beaten, struck in the head 13 times by Watson, stabbed 51 times, and shot twice. Folger was stabbed a total of 28 times, and Tate was stabbed 16 times, resulting in her death and the death of her unborn child. Upon Charles's initial request for the women to, quote, leave a sign, something witchy, Atkins used Shannon Tate's blood to write pig on the front door of the home. The following evening, Charles Manson expressed his disappointment with the fact that their victims had quite nearly managed to escape. So Charles decided to show them how to do it by leading the next attack himself. With no real plan, Charles decided to hit a home that he and the other family members had seen at a party the year before. With Atkins, Kasabian, Watson, Krenwinkel in tow, Charles added Leslie Van Houten and Steve Clem Grogan to the mix for that evening's intended murders. Upon arrival at a home located at 3301 Waverly Drive, Charles approached the house on his own, according to Atkins and Kasabian. Though Watson later claimed to have assisted Charles in the beginning stages of the attack, 
by entering the home through the unlocked back door with Charles. When the two made it inside, Charles pointed a gun into the face of a man named Leno LaBianca, who had been sound asleep on the couch in the living room. Charles tied Leno's hands together while Watson fetched Leno's wife, Rosemary, from the bedroom. Watson then covered the couple's heads with pillowcases and bound them with lamp cords so that Charles had time to retrieve Krenwinkel and Van Houten from the car to help murder the couple. Watson stabbed Leno LaBianca with a chrome-plated bayonet a total of 12 times before carving the word war into the man's abdomen as per Charles' request. In the bedroom, the women were instructed to kill Rosemary, who they had dragged away from her husband during his murder. In total, Rosemary was stabbed around 41 times. Watson instructed the women to vandalize the home with the murdered couple's blood while he showered. So Krenwinkel wrote Rise and Death to Pigs on various walls around the house and used Leno's blood to write Helter Skelter on the couple's refrigerator. At the same time as the LaBiancas were being murdered, Charles then drove the other three Manson family members to the home of an actor he knew. As he dropped them off in front of the apartment complex, Charles ordered the family members to murder the actor and then make their way back to Spawn Ranch by hitchhiking. Member Kasabian said that they tried to avoid the murder altogether by purposefully waking one of the neighbors and making it impossible for the group to go through with the attack. It was not long after the Manson family murders were committed that they were swiftly found to be responsible and arrested. Charles Manson himself was found hiding in a cabinet. On the first day of trial for the Tate and LaBianca murders, Charles Manson arrived in the courtroom with an X carved into his forehead and had a statement issued claiming that he had, quote, X'd himself from your world. In the days that followed, more and more of Charles's followers appeared in court with X carved into their own respective foreheads, mirroring their leader. The 1970 Manson family murder trial was both long and strange, as Charles Manson's unpredictable character made for interesting courtroom etiquette. The primary witness on trial was Linda Kasabian, who had been present for all of the attacks during August 8th through 9th of 1969. Kasabian gave a detailed recounting of the murders and went directly into hiding after she testified. She was not seen again for the next 40 years. In the midst of the trial, President Richard Nixon himself stated that he truly believed that Charles Manson was behind each of the murders, either directly or indirectly, and should be sentenced as such. As a direct result of President Nixon's comments, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten sat in the courtroom and chanted, quote, Nixon says we are guilty, so why go on? Over and over before they were escorted out. Charles began growing increasingly more reckless in the courtroom, and on October 5, 1970, he actually attempted to kill Judge Older. Charles threatened Older while on the stand, before lunging at the judge with a sharpened pencil, intending to stab him in the throat. The defendant's counsel ultimately rested their case, and Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten said that they wanted to testify. However, the three women wanted to testify that Charles Manson was innocent, 
and had no role in the murders whatsoever. Manson himself decided to testify away from the jury and stated, quote, These children that come at you with knives, they are your children. You taught them. I didn't teach them. I just tried to help them stand up. Most of the people at the ranch that you call the family were just people that you did not want. I know this, that in your hearts and your souls you are as much responsible for the Vietnam War as I am for killing these people. I can't judge any of you. I have no malice against you and no ribbons for you. But I think that it is high time that you all start looking at yourselves and judging the lie that you live in. My father is the jailhouse. My father is your system. I am only what you made me. I am only a reflection of you. You want to kill me? Ha! I'm already dead. Have been all my life. I've spent 23 years in the tombs that you have built. Despite their pleas, January 25, 1971, Charles Manson, Krenwinkel, and Atkins were found guilty of first-degree murder in all seven of the Tate and LaBianca murders. Additionally, the jury found Van Houten guilty of first-degree murder in the LaBianca murder. Manson showed up to the penalty reading with a shaved head, and his beard fashioned into a fork. He said to the press, quote, I am the devil, and the devil always has a bald head. Each of the four defendants were sentenced to death, though the death penalty was then ruled unconstitutional in California in 1972. Oddly, on the same day that the death penalty verdicts were read, the body of Ronald Hughes was found. Though it hasn't been proven, many believe that the Manson family also murdered Hughes as he once stood up against Charles Manson. Susan Atkins was California's longest-serving female inmate by the time of her death from brain cancer at age 61 in 2009. Patricia Krenwinkel is still currently imprisoned and, since Atkins' death in 2009, is now the longest incarcerated female inmate in the California penal system. Leslie Van Houten is also still currently incarcerated. Charles Tex Watson has been denied parole 17 times and remains incarcerated today. Charles Manson lived the rest of his life behind bars until dying of cardiac arrest resulting from respiratory failure and colon cancer on November 19, 2017. In recent years, new information has come to light. From in-depth investigations into Charles Manson and the rise of his cult, and research that spanned decades, shocking new details have been uncovered. Tom O'Neill, an investigative journalist, began 20 years ago to look into some of the stranger pieces of Manson's case. He says he faced a lot of difficulty seeking answers because many of the records were hidden behind a veil of government secrecy. But O'Neill noticed something odd. Before 1969, Manson's parole officers allowed him to begin gathering his cult of followers around him, even knowing his history of rampant crime. Even stranger, when his federal parole file was subpoenaed during his trial, the U.S. Attorney General blocked them from being released. This was very unusual, unless they contained something particularly secretive. It has now been revealed that Manson may have been a lab rat for a CIA-funded doctor who experimented with psychedelics as a form of mind control. Many of us have heard of the mysterious project MKUltra, the CIA mind control program where human subjects were tested on to develop drugs 
that would weaken them as individuals, making them more cooperative to suggestion. The experiments often used LSD, but also other psychoactive drugs. MKUltra only officially ended in 1973. From what O'Neill was later able to uncover, it appears that Manson was given immunity from prosecution during the exact time that he was beginning to build up his devoted following. The only reason he would receive such immunity was if he was a government test subject. The doctor who experimented on Manson likely was Dr. Roger Smith, who worked on two federal studies, the San Francisco Project and the Amphetamine Research Project, both of which are now believed to be fronts for CIA MKUltra experiments. As well, Manson and Dr. Smith have a close history weaved together, including Dr. Smith once convincing a judge to release two of Manson's followers from jail, and he attempted to help Manson get permission to travel to Mexico, which was ultimately denied. Not to mention the fact that at one point, Dr. Smith had only one client, Charles Manson, and he actually became the legal guardian of one of Manson's children. O'Neill believes that there is sufficient evidence that Manson was not only a subject of these drug experiments, but also learned from them and employed the same methods with his own followers. For one, it was well known at the time that Terry Melcher would host drug and booze-ridden parties at his beach house, and Manson would often supply the drugs. This is believed to be how the men met and why Melcher became involved in Manson's pursuit of music. Putting the pieces together, many wonder if Manson used the same methods of psychedelic drugs to encourage compliancy with his followers, as he likely witnessed the ways that psychedelics could be used to manipulate people from Dr. Smith, who experimented on him, and he was also known to have drugs in his possession. In 1965, a doctor working on LSD research warned that the drug would lead to LSD cults, where youths who had a desire to, quote, share forbidden activity in a group setting to provide a sense of belonging might cultivate. Note that this was just before the Manson murders began. All of this evidence now seems hardly coincidental, but ultimately, we cannot know for certain if Manson was subjected to the highly secretive drug tests or if he then later used the same methods to encourage others to not only follow him, but to commit atrocious murders. Though Charles Manson is no longer a threat to the world, his mentality has left a lasting effect on the people who trusted and admired him from a distance and up close. In fact, Charles Manson's beliefs and ideologies have been passed down to younger generations who wish to continue Manson's plight despite the brutality of the crimes he committed and the crimes of the rest of the Manson family. Manson himself is even regarded as a true crime icon. The families of the victims affected by the Manson murders may never have true closure as cult followings never seem to truly disappear. Rather, their beliefs may be adopted by others, perpetuated right under our noses. If there is one thing that you take away from this video, I hope that it is this. Be careful who you trust, because we often don't see we are being manipulated until it is too late. <laughs>